Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Well, good morning, Mike. Good morning. So this morning, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about uh, Good Bones. You, you've recently written about this. and uh, Be gentle. I, it's a very soft brain. <laughs> don't pick too hard. Um, ouch, ouch. <laughs> so so uh, for, for listeners, uh, Mike recently wrote in uh, a commentary on um, what, what he's calling Good Bones. And... Um, I think what what struck me on this one is towards the end, you start driving to almost an opinionated um, kind of route for where we're going to invest our, our kind of renewal and focus on the church, which uh, wasn't surprising just by itself, but it was surprising. I feel like you often don't give as direct uh, of an opinion there. And so I'm really curious to hear where you want to go with that. Um, but maybe we'll start just, just a, a, a general, you know, recap uh, of good bones. What do you mean by good bones? Yeah, and uh, one little comment when you said you were surprised, uh, being rather directive. Uh, if you, if um, any of you are ever curious um, about the world we're in, Charles Taylor wrote this opus. Uh, it's huge. Um, it's called A Secular Age. But one of the comments he makes is that. Uh, Clergy in the post-Christian world are reduced to only being suggestive and only being, um, they can never be directive. Mm. Because that, that would be gauche. That would be, uh, uh, that's just not what clergy do. They nudge, they urge, they encourage, they add a boy, add a girl, add a woman, add a man, add a whatever the gender is now. Um, yeah, so it's funny you say that because uh, you look past in ages past and the uh, Going all the way back to, I believe Christ would have been called directive. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, enough of that. Back to the question. Good bones. What was the question again? <laughs> well, <laughs> if you could, you know, what do you mean, good bones? That was the title yeah. of your commentary. But um, yeah. just give us a quick recap there. Well, um, there's going to be three back to back to back columns, but I've been. Uh, I was struck by. Uh, these prophets who wrote during uh, the Babylonian exile. Now remember, the Jewish tradition is is strongly marked by its history of exiles. And it's part of the cautionary tale of living in an enchanted background. In other words, it's not wise to go against God. It will catch up to you. There will be consequences. Since the Enlightenment, especially with Voltaire's famous deathbed sign-off, when asked one last time why he doesn't believe in God or does he even fear any of that, he goes, no, he said, God will forgive. You know, that's his business. And uh, to, to be that cavalier, so the Jews are, 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 observant Jews are different 
in that regard. They are not as cavalier as casual. I've never heard you say, you know, the man upstairs, things like that. Hmm. But I've often heard in our faith tradition, or heard certainly in America. So these these uh, exiles are um, sobering. And you then think about Paul. We are supposed to be sober in all things. So the prophets during the Babylonian exile, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then we come upon Ezekiel. Now, so uh, Ezekiel, I could relate to him. So let me tell you a quick story, Pat. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, USA, from the late great state of Michigan. We always joke, everybody I know is from Michigan. But there's rumor there's some people that are still up there. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I owe uh, much to that tradition in terms of a the tradition etched in my bones a deep reverence for the holiness, the greatness of God. Mm. Now, having said that, I was also, as a wee lad, was um, part of when that tradition began to go into steep decline in the 60s. So a couple of uh, funny stories that at least capture for you why uh, I'm struck by Ezekiel's experience, because it's similar to mine. We, are, uh, we grew up in a, an Episcopal church in Flint, Michigan. Flint, now famous for its water. Um, and then we moved to Saginaw, famous for a town that is just a shell of itself and beautiful little Gothic type, Gothic cathedral type church right downtown Saginaw that was blown up by um, I-275 right there in the middle of town. One of those great 60s projects. Hey, let's slice a town up with freeways. So we ended up moving to, uh, they built another church. Uh, right in town. It was all modernist because we had to be hip, cool. And of course, the reason we existed at that point was to fight the Vietnam War, to, to oppose the Vietnam War. And uh, so that was my experience. I was an acolyte, altar boy, with James Davis. Uh, James, uh, African-American, uh, smart as a whip. And we wanted to be altar boys because altar boys, you got to go in the back and uh, work on it. They're keeping the incense uh, hot and getting the uh, the uh, everything ready so when you come out. In other words, we were bored stiff in the service, but at least we could go back and uh, <laughs> and James had memorized all the Bill Cosby albums, so we just had a blast back there. So much so, <laughs> the priest took to kicking the altar when it was time for us to come out because a number of times we missed our cue. And but uh, <laughs> when we're doing the uh, the elements and when we're doing the incense. There was, a, there was, even for a, a young boy, the sense of uh, something uh, mystical is going on here. Now, that was broken when uh, one time after the Eucharist had been served, if you're familiar with this tradition, the altar boy uh, takes some water and wine, uh, takes the two containers and pours them through the priest's hand into the cup for the uh, cleansing of the cup, of which, if you notice in these traditions, not one crumb 
of host is left over unless it goes into a little box that's saved for last rites. And all of the wine that was in the cup is consumed by the priest and then in the glasses. The cup is carefully wiped out because they feel this is the real presence of the body and blood of Christ. So you don't toss it down the drain, whatever's left over. So I, uh, I'm approaching, I'm probably 12 years old, and I slowly begin to pour the water and wine through the priest's hands, and he leans around and he goes, come on, come on. Hmm. And it just snapped him, and I just went, oh, it isn't real. Now, Father, whoever it was, maybe just had a bad day. But I remember at that point, that was my uh, great falling away from the Episcopal tradition. Um, in my senior year in high school, checked out Buddhism a little bit, couldn't figure it out, went to college, came to faith uh, through our college ministry. And I joined what I call the warehouse church movement. And in the warehouse church movement, um, you can worship anywhere, gym, warehouse, um, architecture means nothing, traditions, ugh. and uh, so I, I uh, you know, it just was, I thought it was perfect. But over time, it just began to, those bones in me ached, especially when I saw the casualness of so much evangelical worship. So it's a long-winded way. So here we go with Ezekiel. Because to be honest, and we do like to be honest here on these podcasts, by the way, I I know very well that most of my friends would look at the Episcopal tradition today or Orthodox or Celtic or um, even some Reformed churches, uh, Catholicism. I mean, I could, I could name a bunch of them. they go, those things, they're deader than a doornail. Dead tradition, blah, 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 blah. We come to our church, we got a rock band up front, 18-piece. We got a drummer behind glass that makes Ginger Baker look like a beginner. We are rocking, man. <laughs> All right, I'm exaggerating, but you get the point. When you come to Ezekiel, he's looking at the nation of Judah in Babylon going, this thing's dead in a doornail. I mean, we're, we're, we don't have our king. We don't have our temple. We don't have our city. We don't have our people. Our people have been uh, murdered. Many of our women raped, then murdered. Our temple's been destroyed. We're up here in Babylon. This thing's dead in a doornail. And God says, well, God doesn't tell him. He transports him. He says, actually... Uh, those bones are just dry. Now that makes no sense to Ezekiel. So God takes Ezekiel, to chapter 37, to a valley of dry bones. And he says, speak to the bones. And uh, we're going to bring them back to life. So he does. He speaks to the bones. God puts flesh on the bones. The people rise up into a vast army. It all comes back to life. Just hit the pause button there. Imagine you're Ezekiel. Whoa. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. <laughs> now, what am I saying? 
Judah had good bones. They were simply dry. They weren't dead. Pat, we'll talk about this perhaps on, oh, maybe we'll talk about it this morning. Christopher West, the best book he's written to date is his most recent book. Our bodies tell God's story. Now, this is, I want to be careful in what I'm saying, but I also want to be clear. The Old Testament often refers to Judah as a bride who is dried up. Now, I don't need to go very far for you to know what I'm talking about. And in fact, that's the picture of the first marriage that Jesus goes to, the first wedding, where he says, the wine has run out. And for Judah, in the Babylonian exile, she's dried up. This nation whom God, the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah, tells them, your creator, is your husband. And as Hosea told an earlier exile, you are his betrothed. You're married to him. But a loveless marriage, often the woman dries up physiologically. These are dry bones, Pat. And so that's what I mean by good bones, is that uh, these traditions that look deader than a doornail, that predate the Enlightenment, actually have good bones. Wow. So, uh, yeah, in, in your commentary, you talk specifically about like what you're referring to here are tradition, are churches with, with some thicker traditions. Um, yes. Yeah. The thicker practices based upon a thicker or richer Im imagine. Well, it's what uh, often see, some people call the social imaginary. I don't know if that's really helpful. I, I, I get what it's going at, but it's basically everything that you see around you is thick with spiritual beings and dynamic. There's no such thing as space, is what Lewis was trying to get at, for example. Um, we don't fill a space. Um, there's no there's such thing as outer space. There are the heavens and the earth that are thick with uh, all this. And these traditions, not all, and not exactly in the same way, but they all, as did all societies, Taylor says, up until the Enlightenment, just assume this enchanted background. You know, they don't even think about it. They just assume it. And hence, I think Taylor makes the point that uh, you're hard-pressed to find an atheist before the Enlightenment, or much to do with atheism, rather, because that would be absurd. That'd be like uh, saying, hey, you know, we can walk on air. 
gravity doesn't exist. Uh, you, you wouldn't have to be a Christian in today's world to go, that's nuts. Uh, no one believes that. So whether or not they were spirits or, you know, in Babylon, for example, there were 1,170 plus temples in the city alone, probably constituting that many religions. So there were the, the pantheon of gods they believed in was thick. The only absurdity for the Judean for the Judeans coming is they believe there was one true God. Yeah, right. But that's why when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, he goes, "Truly, this is the one true God." Well, two two things come to mind for me when you when you're saying this. One is, I think it's it's hard to comprehend what you're saying about the enchanted background. Um, First, with with uh, without reading Taylor's book, even I mean, just just yeah. the, the the assumptions we have today. You know, let's take for example the classic. Um, you know, what it's almost like what you're saying, Mike, is just sounds crazy. Um, we, you know, we know because of science that nothing happens in the Eucharist. You know that that like that's that's just the natural assumption. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And we know because of science that we've ruled those things out. Um, it, it's it's kind of the classic religion versus science, but 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 not quite. It's more nuanced than that. And, and Taylor does drive into this, but but I think it's important to call out, like if we do understand history well and we study it well, you you see that science didn't didn't actually replace religion. Religion had been fading prior, and um, science was actually fueled by religion. You know, that, that's, that's right. something that's that's almost just been been deleted from our understanding of history yeah. um, but but that's an important important piece to note you you can actually have both and I think it's it's probably too foreign for our listeners to, to make sense of um, but but if if they they grant us that grace to just hold that intention for a minute here and and maybe ponder upon that. Uh, I think they'll be interestingly, or, or maybe pleasantly, surprised at some of the uh, some of the unique uh, kind of ways in which we can hold both together. Um, but but the second thing I think is important is what what you're driving towards here is not that older faith traditions maybe have a a more natural raw understanding of the faith today i think what you're saying is they're they're good bones that have that that they too maybe have dried up and so we it's not like you're you're saying look catholics got it right and episcopal you know episcopalians got it right they're doing it right today uh evangelicals are not i I don't think that's what you're saying i now think what you're saying is i think we've all veered off the path a little bit together but thicker faith traditions have good bones to build upon. Yes. And um, yes. Yeah. I, I, but I get it. I get it. But, you know, when I came to faith, I, I'm not very proud of this, but <clears throat> I remember uh, we went, um, my parents had left the Episcopal Church, but we went back for some, I don't know, Easter, whatever. And then we're driving home, and I said, um, you know, I'm really glad I went off to Kalamazoo and went to college and became a Christian because I'd have sat in that church the rest of my life and gone straight to hell. 
Oh, wow. That was such a warm comment. I mean, just remember my parents were just <laughs> like, you know, we want to meet this Jesus you've met. This is just remarkable. <laughs> I'm sitting there with my three brothers. You know, we're all stuffed in the back seat, probably of a Chevy driving back to home. And, you know, it was just stone silence all the way home. Wow. <laughs> but I felt like I had defended the gospel. And, um, uh, listeners, that's called being excessively righteous, by the way, as the writer in Ecclesiastes says, a good way to ruin yourself. Um, but I just uh, felt that, um, we got rid of all this fuddy-duddy dead tradition and robes and smells and bells and all that because we were just preaching Jesus. And um, I was wrong. Um, but it, uh, it took a long time to get there. And a lot of it had to do, had to do with... Um, well, you know, my rank immaturity probably was the biggest thing it had to do. But what's the best way to put it? The uh, thinness of the uh, traditions I was stepping into just simply, it just, it was just, it was thin. It's another way to put it. Uh, here's another way to think about it. Without realizing it, we, most evangelicals are part, uh, really enunciated by uh, Campbell. Uh, Alexander Campbell, who was head of the largest, fastest growing evangelical tradition in the United States in the mid-1800s, Disciples of Christ. And he said, I need no tradition. In fact, he said, no tradition authority can tell me what I believe about the Bible. It's just God speaks to me and that's it. I'm, I'm kind of rephrase, paraphrasing it, but the point is, that just felt like freedom when I came to faith, that felt just, that just felt right. And, uh, but then you begin to go, man, I said in the Bible study, and all we're doing is pooling ignorance. We've come, we've thrown the baby out of the bathwater here. And, um, but if, when I, but I get it that if I thought, you know, I, you know I began to read some Catholic writers, um, began to read some Celtic writers, and you go, is that that that's profound maybe maybe i've swung the pendulum way too far the other way mm -hmm. i haven't said that there's also and this is um i'm always reminded of john adams he said facts are stubborn things we have to recognize that by and large most of the enlightenment or traditions, evangelical traditions formed toward, uh, in, during and after the Enlightenment probably have very few, if any, bones. Hmm. And here's why. So best I can tell, happy to be corrected by anyone listening, uh, Tertullian, uh, you know, early second century, he... Um, uh, first of all, and it has to do with the definition of world evangelical. So let's start there. Uh, it's the Greek word good news. So we see the good news referred to, but it's never referred to Christians. Tertullian does mention it with the, he calls it the, in his Correcting the Heresies of Marcion, says the evangelical and apostolic writings. So 
In other words, what the apostles were teaching is good bones. It's foundational. And then the word disappears. You said that was the second century? Yeah. yeah. Tertullian, I think, is 166, somewhere in there. Poof, gone. Just like you don't see references to fulfilling the Great Commission for centuries. It's poof, gone. Not because they're not doing it. Then you have with Luther's initial followers, they're trying to, in their opinion, return the Roman church to its foundation, to rather the Roman church to the churches foundational teachings, and they refer to themselves as evangelicals. Now, Pat, that's 1500s, and it's the first time you see the word used, at least as I understand it, to refer to a movement. Hmm. As you know, Rome does adopt within 30 years 70 of uh, Luther's 95 theses, his objections, in other words. Uh, and so for some reformers, that's not enough reform. So they protest. So the evangelical fades from defining this new tradition as much as it becomes known as reformers or protesters, Protestants. And the word disappears again evangelical it is then picked up in the second great awakening by evangelists like charles finney now we're in the late 1700s early 1800s mostly in the early 1800s they call their awakenings the second great awakening and then they apply a label to the awakenings that occurred 150 years earlier under Whitfield and call them the first great awakenings. Convenient. <laughs> and they're trying to give themselves some, I frankly, I think they're trying to give themselves some gravitas. Their hearts are the right place, but Whitfields are generally spontaneous, unplanned, urban. Finneys are generally planned, not spontaneous, and rural. Also, to gain some gravitas, they now attach the word evangelical to what they're doing. Here's what my evangelical friends would, good, would do well to come to terms with. And I say in this regard, I am basically evangelical Catholic, little c, which we read in the creeds. We've been, we believe in one holy apostolic Catholic church universal it means if apostolic is evangelical says the good bones we believe in one holy good bones universal church i am evangelical catholic most of my evangelical friends are unfamiliar with we they use the term to denote not good bones, traditions, but a relatively recent 
200-year-old anti-tradition tradition. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Now, an anti-tradition tradition, in other words, what the Luther's evangelicals are trying to do is put good flesh on good bones. What God tells Ezekiel to do is speak to the bones and he will put flesh on good bones. My fear is too often in the traditions of the last 200 years, of which there are now plus 40,000 of the evangelical movement, you're trying to put flesh on flesh. Because there's that the lack of what tradition and structure. That's it. Yeah. You'll notice in Ezekiel 37, God puts the flesh on the bones, and the nation stands up as a vast army. Now I am not saying that before the Enlightenment, every tradition hit the ball out of the park, was awesome, incredible, perfect, yada, yada, yada. No. But they had enough good bones to create modern science, as you notice, the modern university, commerce, capitalism. I mean, the list is long, technologies, The only way, only reason they cited themselves as evangelical was to put flesh on good bones. The last 200 years, because the new evangelicals disdained these bones, you really are putting on flesh on flesh. And I hadn't thought of this, but I have a friend of mine who I actually have several friends who are fairly well connected in the pastor, the pastoral world, pastors, clergy. And every one of them would say with COVID, they have never seen so many clergy. Just, I mean, if they are offered another job, do something else, they'd, they'd snap it up. They'd get out of this vocation, out of this occupation. And I think it's because COVID in some way exposed, you're just trying to put flesh on flesh. So we're always trying to fire people up, uh, fire up another ministry, fire up uh, something else. Um, and the intentions are superb. The enthusiasm is laudable. But it can't, it doesn't stand up. Yeah, I, I I can't help but resonate with everything you're saying. I mean, I, I the whole tradition of anti-tradition um, or an anti-tradition tradition, I think is how you phrased it. Because uh, anything becomes a tradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that was that was definitely my understanding growing up, and um, 
you know, the sort of an anti-Catholic bent. And that may not be everyone's walk through the evangelical um, realm. So, so I don't know, hopefully we're, we're not getting too uh, kind of focused in our own upbringing. But I, I think you've seen it pretty common across the board. And, uh, and I, I've seen it as well. Um, so just by personal experience, I, I definitely... I definitely resonate with what you're saying. I'm I'm really curious, you know, what is that? That sort of implies moving forward that as a believer, um, it's a worthwhile investment for me if I if I wanna uh, if I wanna have or I, I guess if I wanna invest in good bones, then that that may be what, like the implication there is going to a church of an older faith tradition. Um, That's hard for you to say, wasn't it? It took a little while yeah, to get there. Yeah, it took a while. I didn't want yeah, to boy, I tell you what, that was the most circuitous uh, <laughs> uh, sentence I've ever, I think I've heard in the last two. Oh, <laughs> yes, Peck, you going? Where are you heading? Um, yeah, so. <laughs> Not necessarily. Okay, yeah, go for it. Help me understand. I want, I want to widen uh, our imagination frankly, and here's where I run and widen it. I think you're either wise to find a church, not find a church, just frankly, become involved in a church that's got good bones, even though you, you walk in, you know, this place dead in a doornail. Oh, really? Who made you God? You know all this, huh? How do you know they're not dry? How do you know because Ezekiel in the same way is like, eh, no way. God says, yes way. It's funny to see in our anti-tradition tradition, we love to say God can do anything. Except that. Good so point. first of all, hit the pause button on your presumption about. Second, okay, let's say you're in a tradition that doesn't have good bones. Grow them. As, as in pursue some older traditions within the church? Yes. And here is the challenge in that. Well, you can guess. What do you think is the challenge? Uh, yes, that's a quick answer. There's always a yes, <laughs> however. Well, well yeah, the, the challenge is if, <laughs> if you're an anti-tradition tradition and you're trying to incorporate older <laughs> historic traditions, you may uh, have some, some people that don't like your approach. <laughs> that's that's one yeah I mean it's let's just say it's fraught with challenges but here's the biggie in the enlightenment and those traditions that came out of it with all their well-meaning and all their fervor for Christ today and all their enthusiasm the problem in the enlightenment is you can teach stuff and advocate for stuff you don't yet embody. Mm. I see where you're going. Yeah. How, you how can't you... say, hey, yeah. three weeks from now, let's gin up a liturgical service here. Because <laughs> you don't you don't know it. You haven't you haven't practiced it yourself. That's right. Yeah. And it takes in most pre-enlightenment traditions, it certainly takes a couple of years for this to enter your body and become second nature. And here's why I say this. 
in my experience, those who are yearning for something that is deeply spiritual in this way will immediately sniff out all you've done is just added one more service to your menu of services and attempt to reach people. And frankly, when I was a pagan, I did not want to be reached. Keep your cotton picking hands off me. Jesus didn't reach. He embodied something that was so powerfully attractive. He embodied it. He didn't wrestle with, I'm not going to love these people. I mean, I heal 10 and one comes back. Yeah, gummit. Where's the gratitude here? (laughs) See, this is, uh, I think that's the hardest thing. So uh, I was going to write about this, but I don't think I'm going to. So we'll just leave it in the podcast because that way, yeah, sometimes you don't put things in print. They don't. So years ago, a young man came to town here. Uh, the church brought him in because on that Sunday morning, he was going to do a well, what is often called a thick or a deeply rich, good bones liturgical service for his church, and um, which didn't have that tradition. And Kathy and I went, and I've got to tell you, he hit the ball out of the park. I mean, smells, bells, candles, lighting, church uh, seating. It was in the cafeteria of a school, but really, the way they had dimmed the lights and the rest, it was was pretty darn impressive. Hmm. Until the sermon, which wasn't a homily. It was a typical standard, lengthy, didactic. Without knowing the metaphors he used, tipped his hand that he understood the forms, but he didn't understand why all these things. He understood how to do them and what they look like. Now, I don't expect that the other 40, 50 people who were there caught that. But afterward in the hallway, I think he was doing two services. He was doing two services that day. So it was a break. <clears throat> I went out and I just said, hey, that was really, I appreciate it. Tell me a lot about where this comes from. Now, I happen to know because he um, was in one of the largest mega churches in the United States. It's in the Midwest. And he had come to the senior pastor and said he'd been exposed to some of these other liturgies. And so the uh, elders of that church decided, hey, here's a good way to, you know, take care of an attendant. I mean, uh, you know, we're running out of room. Uh, we don't want to add more services. Um, don't have room to add any more services. Want to reach young people? Yeah. So they started, a, I believe, on a Sunday night in the chapel rather than the main huge auditorium. And it grew And a year and a half later, it was shut down. I don't know all the reasons it was shut down, except that I understand that some of the elders who are a little bit perceptive on this began to realize 
This is not who we are. What he's doing is sacramentalist, like the real presence. We don't believe that. So they shut it down. Now I knew some of that, so I was asking questions of this young man. And like I said, terrific guy. And you could tell by his face, by his posture, I was asking questions that he didn't know the answers. And, uh, but he made it clear, he said, I'm really loving this tour. I'm doing a tour of the United States, doing this for churches because I'm writing a book on this. Ah. See, in the Enlightenment, you can learn about, say, uh, oh, wow, look at these uh, disciplines. I'm going to write a book on that. Oh, I learned about uh, monastic. I'm going to write a book about uh, new monastics. That's the uh, the downside of the Enlightenment is, uh, hey, I'm a, this is a really cool thing I just read in Timothy. I'm going to do a series in Timothy. I only say that because I did a series once on uh, Timothy and also on the servanthood and was until I was waiting tables, as I told this story in one of these podcasts, uh, years later, with my so-called doctorate that I'm sitting there, the young whippersnapper clinks a glass and demands I serve him more wine. I wanted to tell that guy where to go. <laughs> so much for servanthood. But I'd written good stuff on it. Uh, <laughs> I didn't embody it. I didn't embody it until I had my nose jammed in it. And this young man... It was too quick, too soon. It's the it's the plague of evangelicalism, according to one of the best historians out there, Nathan Hatch, in his book, The Democratization of American Christianity, in which he says the two most stubborn obstacles in the evangelical tradition, first is populism, that is, we change the world from the bottom up, we're agitating for change and politics and the rest. And second is immediatism. What's that mean? Want it, want it now. Change the world now. Yeah, change the world now. Um, oh, so these, a service like this would attack, attract religious nuns? Let's do it. Now you can do any kind of thing in an enlightenment model. It doesn't have to be embodied. It has to be explained. But in older traditions, you can't do that. Because the gospel is best told in your body. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that's part of the, the rub too with, with uh, within evangelicalism, the, the sort of anti-tradition is that it is indeed meaningless. Um, yeah, you'd have to grow yeah. bones. You'd have to, so I, I, you know, I have hope for, frankly, almost any church, but it's hope, genuine hope is built on recognizing reality. And that's just a hard thing to do for any of us. I mean, is it, for me coming to a certain age, to recognize the reality of, of uh, in my family, generations of um, 
the kids just leaving the parents behind because no one felt close to each other. That's just a hard thing to begin to recognize, especially when they came into Mary and Kathy and a family was thick, thickly wept together. And you go, I mean, I didn't want to face the reality of, of the dynamics or lack thereof in my family. But I had to if I was ever going to anyway be sort of any sort of redemptive presence. Because sitting in the backseat of a car telling your family you're glad you're not going to church because you're going straight to hell is not exactly what you call a redemptive presence. <laughs> so, so recognizing reality. So Pat, here's, here's where I think there is genuine hope because hope is thrown around in uh, really uh, very thin ways today. It's flesh not attached to any bone. Because if you go into now the book of Jeremiah, there are five markers for Judah to put flesh on the good bones. Any church could say, let's grow those bones. It won't happen overnight. But uh, and for listeners, they'll be um, two weeks out. I'll, I'll list the five. They come right out of, it's called prophets in the exile, the exilic prophets. One is Daniel, the others are Jeremiah. And you come to the end of these five markers in Jeremiah 29, and God says, that's my plan for you. Follow it. That's the plan. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for what? Jeremiah 29, for good, for a future, for hope. Hope. This is how we'll put flesh on the bones. And those who begin to embody those 70 years out, Judah returns home to the ancient paths. I know that's a long time, 7-0, 70. But um, you work out, Pat. I began working out again now, post-COVID. But uh, right. you put, you know, you have good bones, but you know, you don't put good muscle on in one month. You don't put on an even in necessarily a year. Mm. Yeah. And so the, the fallacy of, uh, you know, we're going to study this for two months and then gin up a service like this. And especially when it's done for the wrong reasons. And the wrong reasons, although well-intended, are, well, this will reach young people or this will reach religious nuns or this will bring exiles back or this will um, solve our attendance i mean our they'll build our attendance or it'll give us another service or it'll give us another offering at the smorgasbord of services are all wrong 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 i joke with friends listen if every religious nun converted tomorrow said nuts with this and you started the service to reach religious nuns you're not out of business <laughs> that's called the utilitarian approach to traditions and it's what we are unfortunately famous for utilitarian why we do the music like this to reach people it's what they like why do we do this kind of art to reach people it's what they like Everything becomes utility. And what we lose, well, what's the intrinsic 
value in doing it this way? I don't know. You see, in a pre-enlightenment traditions, it was the intrinsic value. There's an intrinsic value in sacramentalism, regardless of anybody shows up. There's hope. This is a message of hope. This is a podcast of hope. But the hope is not flimsy flesh. The hope is putting flesh on good bones. If you have them, even if they're dry, God could do something about that. Or if you don't have them, you can grow them. God can do something about that. It will take a while, but it can be done. <laughs>